Good evening. Welcome to Wednesday evening chapel. We are in the process of being absolutely right. Isn't it a great opportunity? Not a rhetorical question. Isn't that a great opportunity? Yeah. To be able to be transformed in, into his likeness. He makes it possible. Dr. King is the preacher of the hour. We're going to, um, the title of the sermon is Let God Be God. We're going to sing some songs along those lines. My hunch is that you don't know this first one, but it works. So I want you to sing, I want you to learn the chorus. The chorus goes like this. If you need to sit in order to find the text, it's in 1 Samuel 10, 24. And then you can stand back up. <laughs> Beginning at 1 Samuel 10, 24. Now after the scripture reading, I just want to let you know so it doesn't surprise you, there's going to be a video clip, and in that video clip, we had to bleep out a word. I want to let you know ahead of time because I don't want it to surprise you and distract you. So you know it's coming, just ignore it so that you can pay attention to the rest of the words of the video and the rest of the images. Okay? That'll be after the scripture. Here we go. 1 Samuel 10, 24. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There's no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, Long live the king! Samuel explained to the people the regulations of the kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. Then Samuel dismissed the people, each to his own home. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. But some troublemakers said, How can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought him no gifts, but Saul kept silent. Now Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged the town of Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us, and we'll be subject to you. But Nahash the Ammonite replied, I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, uh, Give us seven days so we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, then we'll surrender to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and reported these terms to the people, they all wept aloud. Just then Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen. And he asked, What's wrong with the people? Why are they weeping? Then they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh had said. When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came upon him in power. When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came upon him in power and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces, and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people, and they turned out as one man. 
When Saul mustered them at Bezek, the men of Israel numbered 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. They told the messengers who had come, say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, by the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you'll be delivered. When the messengers went and reported this to the men of Jabesh, they were elated. They said to the Ammonites, tomorrow we'll surrender to you and you can do to us whatever seems good to you. The next day, Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. The people then said to Samuel, Who was it that asked, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring these men to us, and we'll put them to death. But Saul said, But Saul said, No one shall be put to death today, for this day the Lord has rescued Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there reaffirm the kingship. All the people went to Gilgal and confirmed Saul as king in the presence of the Lord. Therefore they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord, and Saul and all the Israelites held the great celebration. I don't want to feel like this anymore. You don't have to. I don't want to go to sleep like this. You don't have to. I want to speak. Say it out loud, say it to me. This is more important than re-election. I want to speak now. Say it again. This is more important than re-election. I want to speak now. Now we're in business. What's happening? We got our kicked in the first quarter, but it's time to get up off the mat. Yes. Say it. This is more important than re-election. I want to speak now. I'm going to talk to the staff. I'm going to take them off the leash. You have a strategy for all this? I have the beginnings of one. What is it? I'm going to try that for a little while. Listen up. Our ground game isn't working. We're going to put the ball in the air. If we're going to walk into walls, I want us running into them full speed. What are you saying? Well, you can start by telling the Hill the president's named his nominees to the FEC. And we're going to lose some of these battles. And we might even lose the White House. But we're not going to be threatened by issues. We're going to put them front and center. We're going to raise the level of public debate in this country. And let that be our legacy. That sound all right to you, Josh? I serve at the pleasure of the President of the United States. Yeah? I serve at the pleasure of the President. I serve at the pleasure of President Bartlett. Toby? I serve at the pleasure of the President. After his first quarter as president, 
Josiah Bartlett and his staff realized they had surrendered their dreams for making a difference in the world to fears of making waves, embarrassing themselves, and losing popularity. They were afraid of losing the White House, not being reelected, and having to give up the wealth, prestige, and fame which they had worked so hard to gain. Self-preservation and selfish ambition had replaced their original drive to serve humanity and make America a better place to live. In the world of West Wing, they were able to realign and refocus by recognizing where their allegiance must lie. Bartlett himself had to realign with his original aspirations and the staff reaffirmed their commitment to serve at the pleasure of the president. The God of creation has never wavered from his eternal aspirations. And God does not need to realign himself with his divine commitments. Unlike the politicians of Hollywood or history, God has remained constant in his promises. However, like the Bartlett staff, God's creatures have not been so steadfast. We find ourselves eagerly signing on to God's agenda with gratitude for the transformation and salvation which he has wrought in our lives. However, before long, we get caught up with the concerns about what others think about us and whether this Christian path really leads to the prosperity, notoriety, comfort, and pleasure which we seek for ourselves. As a result, we leave behind God's agenda and the advancement of his kingdom for the sake of our own way and the advancement of our personal kingdom. Consequently, we find that our allegiance has subtly shifted and we forget at whose pleasure we serve. The book of Judges depicts a deterioration of direction and allegiance just like that. Though the book is full of ups and downs for the tribes of Israel, in general, each succeeding account in the book depicts more faithlessness than the one before. The latter half of the book presents a mix of doubt and idolatry, child sacrifice and selfish corruption. And by the end of the book, the last two accounts reflect such chaos and depravity that all association to God's leadership and his covenant plan are lost from view. The following excerpt from one of the last two accounts in the book of Judges illustrates graphically the deterioration of life when God is neglected. I won't bother to set the scene so much for you because it doesn't really matter. The larger context of this account only affirms the chaos reflected at the end of the book of Judges. Judges 19, starting at verse 22, there are a couple of things I need you to know. First of all, the guest in this story who has a concubine is a Levite. That'll be important for later on. And the story takes place in the town of Gibeah. So here we go, Judges 19, beginning at verse 22. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. 
pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, no, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this disgraceful thing. Look, here's my virgin daughter and his concubine. I'll bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But to this man, don't do such a disgraceful thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them, and they raped her and abused her throughout the night, and at dawn they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine. <clears throat> when he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine limb by limb into 12 parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it said, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came out of Egypt. Think about it, consider it, tell us what to do. Well, that's enough of judges. Allow me, however, to summarize the rest of the story. We're not going to read to the end of the book, so let me just summarize it for you. You can go home and read the rest yourself. In response to those perverse acts of the men of Gibeah, and in response to the call for justice that was sent out by the Levite, whose concubine was raped and killed, in response to all that, the tribes of Israel gathered together to punish the men of Gibeah. However, the tribe of Benjamin defended the men of Gibeah because Gibeah was a city within their tribe. And so as a result, civil war broke out in which all the tribes of Israel fought against their one brother tribe of Benjamin. Ironically, though vastly outnumbered, Benjamin defeated the other tribes of Israel in the first two battles and killed a total of 40,000 Israelites. Finally, in the third battle, the tribes of Israel defeated Benjamin so soundly that only 600 men survived from Benjamin. And when the dust settled and the mad quest for justice against Gibeah was finally fulfilled, the Israelites realized they had nearly wiped out one of their own tribes. In fact, with only 600 men left, the tribe of Benjamin was headed for extinction. So the Israelites realized that women must be provided for their brothers in Benjamin in order to save the tribe. However, in the heat of anger, the Israelites had all sworn never to give their daughters in marriage to any man from Benjamin. So they sought out and discovered there was one city who had not participated in the war against Benjamin. That city was Jabesh Gilead. The Israelites 
then killed everyone in Jabesh Gilead except for the young virgins, whom they kidnapped in order to give to the remaining men of Benjamin. The problem was, there were only 400 young virgins that were taken from Jabesh Gilead, and therefore more women were needed for the 600 men of Benjamin. So the Israelites came up with an additional plan. The yearly festival at Shiloh was about to take place. So the Israelites instructed their brothers from Benjamin to hide in the fields during the festival. And when the young women came out to dance during the festival, the men of Benjamin were told to jump up out of the field, grab a woman, carry her off, and take her as a wife. That way, the families of those women would not be guilty of giving their daughters away to the Benjaminites. Because they weren't given, they were taken. So they're free from their oath. Now, lest you think I exaggerate, go read the last four chapters of Judges. This lovely biblical tale at the end of Judges begins with the threat of homosexual perversion, the rape of a Levite's concubine, and her murder. And in retaliation, the story ends with the death of a total of 65,000 men in battle, the slaughter of the town of Jabesh Gilead, the kidnapping of 400 virgins from Jabesh Gilead, and the kidnapping of around 200 women in the fields surrounding Shiloh. Surely this tale is destined to join the classic collection of bedtime devotionals for children drawn from the biblical text. But seriously, where are the prophetic voices in this account? Where are the condemning and corrective words of the inspired narrator? Where is the wrath of God demonstrating to Israel the chaos and wickedness of such actions? In place of loud and clear divine responses to this mayhem at the end of Judges, the narrator provides us with two almost hidden comments. The subtlety of the comments practically serves to highlight them in contrast to all the surrounding madness. One comment appears between the final two accounts in the book of Judges. That is, it's placed just before the story we reviewed and right after the previous account, which is very similar in wickedness, selfish ambition, and idolatry. The comment appears at Judges 18.31, and it merely indicates that these chaotic events were taking place while the house of God was at Shiloh. While selfish ambition, idolatry, immorality, perversion, murder, war, kidnapping flood the countryside, meanwhile, the house of God is at Shiloh. The nearly silent statement stands out in contrast to the bedlam around it so that consequently it screams for attention. Through this literary variance, the narrator communicates exactly what is wrong at the end of Judges. God has been neglected and set aside in Shiloh. The result of such disregard is made clear by the devastation which is depicted 
in those final two accounts in Judges. The warning can't be more clear. Life pursued without God readily deteriorates into madness. The second statement, also very subtle, at least appears with a little more frequency. It appears near the beginning of the first of the final two accounts in Judges at 18.1. It appears again between the final two accounts at 19.1. And finally a third time as the last line of the book of Judges in 21.25. So it envelopes these final two stories and appears in the middle of them. In the first two instances the statement simply reads, In those days there was no king in Israel. The final rendition of the statement completes the thought with these words. In those days, there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. Once again, the narrator uses contrast and irony to highlight the message. For in reality, there was a king in Israel. And that king was being rejected and neglected in Shiloh. As the Lord God later explains to Samuel, the last judge of Israel, he says, they have not rejected you, O Samuel. They have rejected me from being king over them. Accordingly, the message is reinforced. Life pursued without allegiance to God as king readily deteriorates into madness. Moving ahead into the book of 1 Samuel, we find that the first act of Israel's first human king provides an alternative picture to the madness at the end of Judges. The contrasting image demonstrates obvious connections to the account at the end of Judges but it also reflects the gracious and wondrous transforming power of God. To begin, notice God's choice for the first king of Israel was a man from of all places, Gibeah of Benjamin. The first king of Israel chosen by God comes from the very city known for its perversion and infamous in recent history as the catalyst for civil war, the slaughter of Jabesh Gilead, and the kidnapping of women. God's choice clearly underscores the powerful theme of transforming grace. God can take even a man from Gibeah and transform that one into his chosen instrument. Likewise, God can transform even you and me for his great purposes. Shortly after the official and public announcement that Saul of Gibeah was designated as the first king of Israel, an enemy, Nahash the Ammonite, attacked Jabesh Gilead. Yes, this is the same town whose men were killed and virgins kidnapped due to the abomination which had taken place at Gibeah and Benjamin at the end of the book of Judges. This time, an enemy named Nahash captured Jabesh Gilead and threatened to gouge out the right eyeball of everyone in town. Jabesh Gilead was on the other side of the Jordan River and far to the north. 
The brand new first time king of Israel was certainly not expected to trouble himself or the nation with the problems of a small group of people on the edge of the kingdom across the river far to the north. After all, Saul had not even established a palace yet. He had not chosen a cabinet or advisors yet. He hadn't even assembled an army yet. In fact, when news of this irritating dilemma in the north reached Saul, the text indicates he was coming from the fields behind his oxen. Accordingly, instead of prepared, wearing warrior's boots marked with gashes and blood, he was likely wearing farmer's boots marked with manure and mud. Nevertheless, when news of the crisis reached Saul, the biblical text reports an experience which defines God's concept of kingship for Israel. Verse 6 of 1 Samuel 11 indicates the Spirit of God came upon Saul in power. In contrast to the cries of the people for a king like all the other nations, God's idea of monarchy for Israel was grounded in a king ruled by the Spirit of God. Now Saul's first move was to gather an army. He did so through rather unusual means. I'm aware of only two places in the Bible where someone gathers an army by cutting up what was a living being into 12 pieces and shipping them through the countryside with a message to come together for war. Saul does it here by cutting up oxen. And this echoes the other, even more unusual instance in which the Levite did the same thing by cutting up his concubine at the end of Judges. In the case of the Levite, an army was gathered, civil war ensued, and the people of Jabesh-Gilead were destroyed. But here in the case of Saul, the army is gathered, Nahash and the Ammonites are defeated, and the people of Jabesh-Gilead are saved. After Saul's great victory, the people of Israel desired to kill some worthless Israelites who had initially opposed the kingship of Saul. However, Saul's response to the people further demonstrates God's concept of kingship. Saul states, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. Saul's statement points back to God as the true king and deliverer into Israel. Accordingly, the establishment of kingship in Israel begins with the affirmation that God is king and the human ruler is simply a servant of the true king, the Lord God. Clearly, there's a contrast between the accounts at the end of Judges which indicate in those days there was no king in Israel and all the people did what was right in their own eyes. And the account of the establishment of kingship in Israel recorded in 1 Samuel. Nevertheless, the inspired writer highlights obvious connections between those two accounts. Both stories involve the otherwise obscure towns of Gibeah 
and Jabesh Gilead. Also, these two accounts present the only two instances in the Bible where armies are gathered by cutting up body parts and shipping them to the 12 tribes of Israel. These texts are linked in order to drive home the message that God's people need to recognize that God is and always has been the King of Kings. When we neglect that truth and run life on our own, the result is chaos and madness. Yet when we acknowledge God's sovereignty and submit to His authority, we can experience deliverance and prosperity in line with His kingdom purposes. We just need to let God be God. When my wife and I moved to Texas years ago, we were 21 years old, had been married for two years, and had a one-year-old child. We had grown up in Oregon, and this was our first move out of state as adults. As we drove down Interstate 35 and the Fort Worth skyline began to loom ahead, I was overwhelmed with a sense of dread. We were moving to a strange land. We only knew one other family in the entire state. I was taking on a new job at a new church and was nervous about attending a new school and the demands of seminary education. Over time, though, we learned to depend on God. And over time, everything fell into place. All we had to do was let God be God. After completing seminary, we moved again, this time with two young children, to the open 24 hours a day city of Las Vegas in the barren land of Nevada. We were moving to work at a church in a city where we weren't even sure they had churches. Again, I was overwhelmed with the stress of a new place, not knowing anyone in town, facing a new job, and securing a new home. We learned to depend on God and follow His lead. We had to let God be God. A couple of years later, now with three children, we made the move to California to complete the final installment of formal education. Once again, the anxiety of a foreign land not knowing anyone in town, finding a new home, securing new jobs, and tackling greater demands at school threatened to overwhelm us. The day we first moved into our apartment in Concord, California, a young boy greeted us on the sidewalk waving a knife and warning us we better be careful because this is a rough neighborhood. The complex where we lived included a number of rival gangs and multiple languages we didn't understand. There were shootings in the area, bloody fights at our front door, and needy neighbors suffering from brokenness and abuse. Despite the surrounding chaos, God empowered us to minister to others and carried us through eight years in that place as I commuted to a school in Berserkley Might as well have been Gibeah. <laughs> Nevertheless, we even created joyful memories as we learned to let God be God. After interviewing for a position here at Nazarene Bible College, I flew out a second weekend to secure housing and prepare for the move. On the flight back to California, 
as I was contemplating the upcoming move to Colorado and the start of a career, I was once again overwhelmed with uncertainty and a sense of inadequacy. Sitting alone in my row on the plane, I looked out the window and began to cry. Flying west late in the evening, the sky was black and empty except for a striking ribbon of sunset on the western horizon. The ribbon was deep crimson, almost vermilion red. The ribbon appeared as if a stream of blood in the midst of dark blackness. I was reminded of the shedding of Christ's blood for a dark world. The Lord's assurance and comfort gripped me with a strong affirmation in the words, I love you, I died for you. All I had to do was let God be God. Your own circumstances are subject, as you know, to all types of chaos and brokenness, anxiety and uncertainty. We must avoid the temptation to take matters into our own hands and live as if there is no king in the land and we should do whatever's right in our own eyes. On the contrary, there is a king over heaven and earth who loves you and wants to direct your life. Let us reign over our lives as servants of God, ruled by the Spirit of God. Surrender to Him and let God be God. We're going to sing an old song in response. Go ahead, put the words up. Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. Our
God, fill us with thy spirit as only you can, and carry us forth as your instruments for your glory. Amen.